2: Hey, it's Hilary Frank, creator and executive producer of this show. So you guys have probably heard me talk about my book, Weird Parenting Wins. It's a book full of unusual parenting strategies from listeners of this show. Maybe you're one of them. Well, I just wrapped up my book tour for Weird Parenting Wins, and it was amazing to meet so many of you. I even got to meet some people whose parenting strategies are in the book. Now, if I didn't come to a city near you you can still get a signed book. We have them right now in the Longest Shortest Time shop. Just go to podswag.com slash longshort. That's podswag.com slash longshort. Now onto the show with our host, Andrea Salenzi. When Danny McLean was seven or eight years old, in the mid-1980s, she and her mom started a new early morning ritual. They weren't really a singing or dancing family. But still, their days always started with the Whitney Houston song, Greatest Love of All.
3: She would put it on before we left home in the morning to go to school and work. So she still lives in the house that I grew up in. It's the house that she grew up in as well, and the house that her dad grew up in. And the living room is the biggest room in the house, and that's where the stereo was set up, and we would dance there. As the only daughter to a single black mother, Danny knew this ritual wasn't just about the song. I was taught, you know, by my mom how to live with dignity and self assurance and how to not believe the things that the world would tell me about myself. The song's message about self-reliance and
2: self-love would guide Danny throughout her day and into the years to come. It's a
3: lesson she'd someday pass on to her own daughter. I actually think that there are ways that Black family is set up to teach how to resist white supremacy because, you know, we have to do it for ourselves. And so we teach our children what's worked for us and how to navigate this world.
2: is the longest, shortest time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Our guest today, Danny McLean, is a reporter on reproductive justice and race. She just wrote this incredible book for her daughter, a tightly woven and truly inspiring political manifesto called We Live for the We, in which she reimagines motherhood not as a drain on your identity and sleep and sex life, but as a kind of powerful political action, especially for Black women. In America, black mothers didn't have legal rights to their children until after emancipation. In America, we ask grieving black mothers to become symbols for the movement when their children are killed in gun violence. And in America, black mothers face a death rate four times higher than white mothers when giving birth. Today on the show, author Danny McLean will share her revolutionary take when it comes to mothering. Danny grew up in the suburbs outside of Cincinnati, the only daughter to a single mother, which is why she never learned to define family in the nuclear way dad, mom, sister, brother, but instead as aunts, uncles, grandparents, even neighborhood elders.
3: All these people who were usually at her house. My grandfather had put a big in ground pool in the backyard at some point in the 70s. And so we would have these pool parties or just like these impromptu gatherings, all the neighborhood kids knew that they were welcome. So I have a lot of memories of just like a backyard full of kids and full of people. And there was no shortage of adults watching out for Danny. There was an understanding that any adult who my mom knew and trusted was empowered to correct me. You know, it's not like she was the only person who could tell me not to do something. These other adults
2: often took on important roles in her life, Like her Aunt Pam, who moved in around the time Danny and her mom were dancing to Whitney.
3: Pam would dance, too. She was part of something called the National Brotherhood of Skiers, which is a national organization for black people who like to ski. The National Brotherhood of Skiers started in the
2: 1970s to encourage more African Americans to ski and to offer a way to do it so you'd never be the only person of color on the mountain. At their heyday when Danny was a member,
3: there were over 80 chapters nationwide. And as I got older and as I got good, she would take me to on these big trips and I would compete, you know, I would race downhill skiing.
2: The chapters would get together to ski all day,
3: party at the lodge, and then donate money
2: to support youth ski leagues. Like Danny's neighborhood, part of being in this black community meant lifting up their young people. Like what Aunt Pam was doing for Danny.
3: She loved watching tennis. You know, so this was in the days of, like, Martina Navratilova.
0: Advantage Navratilova.
3: Yvonne Lindell. Lindell now with his third. I just remember waking up Saturday and Sunday mornings, and I would always be so annoyed that she had commandeered the television set and was watching tennis, and I couldn't watch my cartoons or whatever. But we would watch tennis together, and I learned about tennis. Get it. And I think back on it now, because she would have been in her 30s And when I was in my 30s, I was like out having fun with my grown friends. I wasn't, I don't think it would have occurred to me to spend so much of my downtime making sure that a young person in my family had all these great experiences, but she really did. Aunt Pam never married or had kids of her own, and she helped
2: raise Danny and her cousins. They all became her kids. And when Danny started her book about Black motherhood, she got meeting women and activists who grew up like Danny did, in family networks led by women.
3: I think I was aware of some of the, the ideas about unmarried moms, single moms, the stigma attached to families headed by unpartnered women. But none of those stereotypes jived with my experience.
1: We know that more than half of all black children live in single-parent households. Half. We know the statistics that children who grow up with a, fa- out a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime.
3: When Obama was running for office, you know, he gave his speeches and predominantly, you know, to, to black crowds where he talked about the perils of single motherhood and woman-headed households and Then, we, you know, when Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012, he was talking about how he was trying to make some connection between gun violence and single mothers.
1: Because if there's a two-parent family, the prospect of living in poverty goes down dramatically. The opportunities that the child will, will be able to achieve increase dramatically. So we can make changes in the way our culture works to help bring people away from violence and give them opportunity and bring them in the American system.
3: This is an equal opportunity myth. Like, we see it coming from liberal circles just as often as we see it coming from conservative circles. And I think... There's just this assumption that, like, if you're married, if you're in a married partnership, then your family must be high-functioning and everything must be going well. And if you are in a single-parent household, then everything must be a mess and you are automatically impoverished. In Danny's book, she writes about how
2: some academics and politicians will make a casual assumption that there's a link between poverty and remaining unmarried. But she thinks that while these things might be correlated— being unmarried doesn't cause poverty. She points out that economically stable, educated individuals tend to marry each other. They stay out of poverty because they didn't start out poor. But if you are poor, poor plus poor doesn't equal middle class. She thinks the reason we attach unwed mothers to these stereotypes is because it's unnerving to some people every time a family structure diverges from the mainstream. Even if that family structure is more in line with how the rest of the world has functioned for a lot of human history.
3: And I also think that because in some ways patriarchy has functioned differently in Black communities, that we're also set up to resist patriarchy. Like when you read a lot of the white feminist scholarship on family, a lot of it has like... started from this assumption that the, that the man is the head of the household, is the breadwinner, and that the, the woman doesn't work, and she is kind of confined to the domestic sphere, and so, like, relatively powerless. And that's just not really how Black families have functioned for the most part. I think, you know, Black women have always worked. We have a leg up on, like, knowing how to balance the work that we do in the outside world with managing and being partners in the domestic sphere, you know, for our partners and our kids. Part of what makes motherhood political to Danny is
2: the fact that mothers transmit culture. The culture that Danny was
3: raised in gave her a sense of empowerment and possibility. When I talk to people who, not all, but some people who say, you know, I didn't want kids because I felt like I'd have to choose between having a child and uh pursuing a career or being ambitious professionally I never felt that that never occurred to me and I think it's because of the women in my life who I saw mothering it's like you know that's not what it means to be a mom you don't give up your life you it's something that enriches your life in a bit what
2: it's like to be a reporter covering the black maternal health crisis while pregnant
0: don't go away Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like... (laughs) (laughs) Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at best Western.
1: Start your electric journey right here right now. With a Volvo Xc ninety recharge, our plug-in hybrid SUV with extended range For more everyday electric journeys on a single charge with a hybrid option for longer adventures. Contact your local retailer to book a test drive or design your own vehicle at volvocars.com/us. The Volvo XC90 Recharge plug-in hybrid, the electric car with a backup plan.
2: <laughs> and we're back. So Danny McLean's book has an entire chapter on birth, but before the book was around. She was covering Black maternal health for The Nation magazine. And she was doing it
3: while pregnant. So when I was pregnant, I mean, I think my reporter instincts just kicked in immediately. And I was, like, researching everything I could, reading every book I could get my hands on.
2: Danny got pregnant when she was 37 years
3: old, living in Cincinnati again near her
2: friends and family and engaged. She was relatively healthy, didn't have high blood pressure or diabetes. She wasn't poor, had private health insurance and a master's degree. But none of that mattered, not even her class privilege, when it came to the risks to her and her baby. Danny worried about the things she was reading about, things like being treated so negligently at the hospital that she'd end up injured or dead. She worried knowing that Black women are four times more likely to die during childbirth than white women. The thing she found would matter most was going to be her relationship with her doctor's.
3: I had chosen this midwifery practice actually in Dayton like an hour from here because it would allow me to birth with a midwife in an environment that was set up more like a home birth, even though it was in a hospital. It was the closest I could get to the kind of birth that I thought I wanted to have.
2: But when she walked into her OB's office or saw various specialists, she started suspecting that her all-white doctors and their all-white staff, with the exception of the one black receptionist where she got her ultrasounds, we're only seeing her as a black woman, not an Ivy League graduate or someone whose job included researching reproductive health or anything else that could have shielded her from substandard care. So she started focusing a lot of her energy on her appearance.
3: At that point I was engaged. My my daughter's dad and I were engaged, and so I didn't wear my engagement ring all the time, but I always wore it before I went for my prenatal appointments.
2: Danny raised by a single mother who'd go on to become a single mother herself in a year. Didn't believe being married could make her
3: a better parent, but she knew her doctors might. Because I needed my doctor and the nurses to see, like, this person is part of a family of people that care about her and that care about this, you know, coming being.
2: Danny even thought her treatment might change based on how she wore her hair. I'm somebody
3: who changes my hair a lot, and so... I don't think, I never did my hair a particular way before an appointment, but I always thought about, okay, today I have cornrows, or today I have my hair out in a big afro, or, you know, I have my hair flat ironed, and so it's straight, um, and just looks like a straight bob. Are those different ways that I appear going to have an impact on how I'm talked to and how I'm treated? Danny's worries were only growing. Worries like, what if I have a baby that's
2: too small to thrive? Black babies are twice as likely to die before their first birthdays than white babies. This growing distrust guided Dani
3: when she got some news at her 10-week appointment. I was told that I had a huge fibroid the size of a grapefruit that was blocking the birth canal. And because of that, I wouldn't be able to have a vaginal birth and I would need to have a C-section. What was your first
2: response to that news?
3: I was really upset. I was really upset because um, I didn't know that I had fibroids. I I knew a lot of black women with fibroids. I knew a lot of people in my family with fibroids, but I didn't have any of the symptoms. So I was shocked. And then during that first appointment, the doctor who ran my ultrasound, who told me I had fibroids, you know, she told me I would need to have a C-section. And she told me that, you know, I was at risk of hemorrhage and possibly needing to have a hysterectomy, you know, if things didn't go right during the C-section. So it was just all this information at once that just was not in line with this kind of idyllic, like, natural vaginal birth that I was intent on having because I had watched movies like The Business of Being Born and just had all these ideas about what an ideal birth looked like.
2: Danny knew from her reporting that Black women are up to three times more likely than white women to have fibroids. She also knew about the C-section rate in the United States. It's more than double what's recommended by the World Health Organization. And when she learned that that rate is even higher for Black women than for white women, even when that patient is considered low risk, she wondered if she was being steered by her provider's unconscious racial bias into joining that
3: statistic. I was worried that this team of doctors just wasn't seeing the same options for me that they might be seeing for a white patient, that they, you know, might be thinking, well, she has fibroids like so many black women do. This is just what needs to happen for her without really being willing to work with me and talk to me about my options where I was just really, it was hard for me to trust the decisions that they were making for me.
2: Danny wanted a second opinion. So she reached out to a black female OBGYN in her area. Someone who
3: doesn't deliver babies, but who could look over Danny's ultrasounds
2: and reports.
3: I literally had to hear it from a black OB that I needed a C-section before I could rest and just kind of relax into the, my decision to have a, a planned C-section.
2: Despite those early misgivings, Danny went back to her first OB. He'd been consistently thoughtful and patient during their appointments when Danny would show up with her
3: list of questions. As she got closer to giving birth. She made sure to ask for what she needed. My doctor wanted me to schedule a C section. I felt very comfortable just kind of pushing a little bit and saying, I really don't want to have a scheduled C section. I'd rather go into labor. Is that possible? And he said, Yes. You know, I would really, I have this relationship with you. I really feel like I'm coming to know you and trust you. You know my situation. When I go into labor, I would like for you to be the person that does my C section. Are you willing to do that? Yes. But making
2: those requests, those feel like, ordering off menu to me. <laughs> it's mm. like you had to have that
3: specialized knowledge in order to even know you could ask for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. And, and it's not just my training as a journalist. I have a lot of, you know, class and educational privilege where I've watched a lot of people who feel entitled. You know, I've, I've been around my whole life. I've been around people who have a lot of entitlement and I've watched how they navigate. And I just assume that for myself. It's now July 2016. Danny. Seven months pregnant. When you're pregnant, people talk about the first trimester. They talk about morning sickness and you know nausea and how hungry you are and weird cravings. And so few people talk about the discomfort of third trimester. So I was really physically uncomfortable. You know, insomnia and sciatica and just all these things going on. That was the summer when Baton Rouge police killed Alton Sterling.
2: And then the next day, Philando Castile was shot during a traffic stop. With a four year old in the car. Danny would lie in bed, overwhelmed, trying to slow down her breathing.
3: You know, I had been reporting throughout my pregnancy and in the years preceding that, and I knew how to basically shut down my emotions and watch what needed to be watched and read what needed to be read and do the interviews that needed to be done.
2: Danny had read public health research into the effects of stress the kind likely caused by racial discrimination experienced over a lifetime. How African Americans at 35 have the same rates of disability as white Americans who are 55. And she thought about how the American experience can tear away at the Black body.
3: I just couldn't do it anymore that summer. I just, I got scared and I took it really personally. I was thinking a lot about You know, the safety of this young person that we were bringing into the world, I just kind of lost it. And so I decided to stop. I don't think I totally stopped watching the news. I can't remember. But I definitely took a step back because that's what felt like the healthiest thing to do.
2: And then one Thursday night, Danny and her partner were having a date night. She was determined to make sure her sciatica and weeks of insomnia didn't get in the way of them seeing the movie "South Side with You," about the Obama's first date. Sitting in the car while her partner went inside a Moroccan restaurant to order them food, Danny felt her water break. It's time to go in for her C-section. Minutes before giving birth, Danny met the nurse in charge of administering her anesthetic. And she thought about a study she'd read that year by the University of Virginia that found that about half of their white medical students and residents held at least one false belief about biological differences between black and white people. Things like black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's. The nurse was white and friendly,
3: but Danny made him look her in the eye and promise she wouldn't feel anything. There's this drape between basically so you can't see your stomach being opened up. So her dad was by my side, and he could see both. Of course, he was by my side near my face, so I could see and talk to him, but he could also see what the surgeons were doing down below. And I think, you know, when she was born, I remember her dad handing her to me, and... I mean, it's just amazing because you, at least I had all these, you just don't know. I mean, so much of pregnancy is like all these questions and it doesn't, it didn't really dawn on me until just that moment that this was an actual person, not just a part of my body, but an actual separate being and being able to hold her close to my face and hear her crying. It was just so beautiful.
2: You wrote that in her face you saw some of the same expressions that you still see. Skepticism <laughs> and seriousness.
3: I mean, yeah. She's very, uh... <laughs> she has a lot of questions and a lot of opinions. Um, <laughs> and she, al- she just always has, you know? I have this picture of her dad holding her when she was days old, and She has this look on her face like, I don't know if y'all really know what you're doing. Like, she just is looking at him like, (laughs) "Uh, I'm not quite sure about this
2: situation. When Danny set out to write a book for her daughter, a daughter born in the era of Black Lives Matter and Me Too, she thought about the book as the start of a conversation.
3: Having a Black girl child, a Black daughter, it's just kind of crystallized for me the importance of resisting white supremacy and resisting patriarchy. It's not like I was ever wavering in my commitment to those things um, for my, on behalf of myself and on behalf of, you know, the communities that I care about and my desire to see changes in this world. But now that I know what's at stake for her, it's just kind of deepened my commitment to those things. They named her Isabel Suzanne.
2: Isabelle, spelled like the Bjork song. And Suzanne, because Danny and her daughter's dad love the Nina Simone cover of the Leonard Cohen song. In a bit, Danny McLean is raising a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. We'll hear how much of her mom life is about raising her daughter to resist white supremacy and the patriarchy, and how much is laundry and dishes. Stay with us.
1: Suzanne takes you down
2: to a place by the river You can hear the boats go by You can spend the night forever And you know that she's half crazy
3: And that's why you want to be
0: there <laughs> Advertisements. <laughs> Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze. And it felt a little like... Time to go Okay kids, back in the room (laughs) Good night Life's a trip, make the most of it At Best Western
1: Start your electric journey Right here, right now
2: lot of books about motherhood these days. I know, our producer Jackie and I, we read some of them. But usually, these books are about the personal, not the political. For Danny, motherhood put her values and ideals into action, felt like participating in a larger movement towards creating a better world. Even doing the most ordinary things like breastfeeding would make her think of the generations of women before her who couldn't do that.
3: Whether because of the type of work that we've had to do post-emancipation or certainly during slavery we weren't even able to lay claim to our children as our children you know they could be sold away from us and and shipped away from us you know and understanding and thinking about the history of what black family has meant in this country I fully embrace my ability to parent and to form black family it feels like a revolutionary act So for Danny,
2: she brings that awareness into all the decisions she makes as a mom. As part of revolutionary parenting, she read about the impact nutrition has on brain development in the first two years of your child's life. And now she's really into food prep. As part of revolutionary parenting, she's teaching her daughter how to be grateful for
3: what they have. When I give her her food, I try to remember to say, I'm so thankful we have good, healthy food to eat. And because other people in her life are teaching her prayer in a more explicit way, she's learned to say amen. So she says amen after I say that. I think that's really sweet. I want her to take a moment to be thankful before she eats. Danny bought an analog clock for the kitchen.
2: So she'd check her phone less often in front of her daughter. And in a world where it's harder to have all your cousins on the same block, she's working on finding that extra support.
3: I have to be a lot more intentional about creating community for her. Honestly, it's made choosing a preschool for her feel really important because I feel like that's where we're going to get a lot of our early social relationships. And when
2: Danny and her partner decided to split up, revolutionary parenting led them to start six months
3: of therapy to make sure they'd get co-parenting right. I'm very committed to her having a positive relationship with her dad. It's very, very important to me. I didn't have a relationship with my own father growing up. And while I have talked about feeling good about my childhood and my family, yeah, I mean, it certainly was something that I had a lot of questions about. I don't want that for her. Danny's even applying revolutionary parenting to bedtime. I'm really interested in her having bilingual books and having books that have, you know, girls and women as protagonists or even like non-gendered protagonists. I'm interested in like changing the lyrics to Old MacDonald to say Old MacDonald had a farm and on her farm she had a horse or whatever. Um, (laughs) Even though like it's cheesy, but it's real. You know, it's like so many of the things that make it hard for us as adults to break out of binary thinking is because it's, you know, the seeds are planted in our childhood. and, And so I'm trying to plant seeds for her that just Open up her mind to different possibilities. And then every morning when they wake up, Danny and her daughter have a ritual. Actually, as soon as she could talk and I knew she could respond uh, to this question, I started asking her if she had dreams the night before and what she dreamed about. And that's in part influenced by this artist and activist who I heard speak at a conference in Detroit a couple years ago. Her name is Yamani Hernandez. She's a mom, and she talked about how she would ask her children every night before bed, what are you going to dream about? Because she wanted to get them in the practice of, like, really knowing that they could think about that, that they could think, okay, what am I going to dream about? Because, as she said it, you know, revolutionaries are dreamers.
2: And just like with her
3: mom and the Daily Dose of Whitney Houston, Danny and Isabel love to listen to really good music together. She said this to me this morning as I was driving her to my mom's house. As soon as we got in the car and I turned on NPR— she always says, Mom, I don't want to listen to the news. I don't want to listen to the news. I want to listen to Donny Hathaway. Um, So, (laughs) you know, and so like, because we've been listening to Donny Hathaway for the past week, even though it's so beautiful and I love it, I'm like, I'm kind of tired of this. I put in something else. She's like, ooh, who's this singing? I'm like, this is D'Angelo. And then I just like look in my rearview mirror and she's just like, listening to it, taking it in. I don't want to listen to the news either. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, you're right. You're right. I'm going to be looking at the news all day today. Let's take this half an hour during this drive and just take a break from the news and listen to something beautiful.
2: So, mothering is a political act, but it's also an escape from politics.
3: Yeah, and she's going to get it. I mean, she... You know, when she's hanging out with me and my friends Adrian and Jody, or Sharda or, like, whoever, we're talking about politics. Like, she's—I'm that. not worried about that. She's going to hear—she's going to get that by osmosis. But she's not going to have an apolitical life. She can't because she's a black girl. Like, her life is political. She's going to hear her family members talking about the world around us and having an analysis. So— you know, she's going to get I think she's going to get what she needs. To be a un- gift.
2: Danny McLean is the author of We Live for the We. And if you read close, she even gives our show a mention on page 36. On our website, we asked Danny to recommend some books from writers who inspire her. Head to com to get the full list. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Dostovska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Hillary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now, and you can get a signed copy if you visit podswag.com slash short. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. Our technical director is John Delore. Our music is performed by HotMoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, when comedian Robbie Hoffman was a kid, she always had to race her many siblings home from
0: school. My mother would buy uh, popsicles, eight in a box, and we were ten. What it's like to grow up as the seventh of ten kids. I would take a stick to my brother so fast, hit him out of the way, topple his ass for one of those. And nothing ever tastes better. I'll say that. Nothing ever tasted better.
2: You're not going to want to miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are hard at work on a new season of episodes. So right now, we're looking for really funny stories about you and your kids. The kind of story that you tell me at a party and the two of us would be crying laughing. We're going to be back in a month with new episodes, starting on April 24th. Until then, send us your stories. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab and submit your story. To be a